Well, it is so lovely to be with you all this morning, this beautiful morning. And some of you might remember, I'm from Boston, originally born and raised, and growing up, I lived in a neighborhood that had a lot of families. So as a teenager, I did a lot of babysitting. And it was a good gig. It paid a dollar an hour. <laughs> right. What's the going rate now? $10? $15. Anybody paying $20 an hour? <laughs> Ooh, inflation, boy. Well, back then, a dollar an hour was good money, and, uh, but you had to work for it. You had to make dinner as part of the deal, or at least we did, make dinner, clean up the kitchen. Uh, but there was a lot of business in our neighborhood and families that would use us time and time again. My, myself, I had two sisters, so we were you know, kind of a babysitting racket in our house. And I remember one family we babysat for on a regular basis, uh, had three or four kids. And I was there a Saturday night, the parents had gone out to dinner, and I was making dinner, and I put the two-year-old in the booster seat, and I went to bring his plate of food over, and I dropped it, and it made this loud crash, and the food went flying everywhere. And the little two-year-old, in his sweet baby voice, let out a curse. And I was like, what? Brian, don't say that. And he looked up at me with his big baby eyes and said, Daddy does. <laughs> right, oops. <laughs> Things you don't want to know as a babysitter, right? <laughs> well, if you're a parent and have kids, or a grandparent, or have nieces and nephews, or people that are looking up to you, you know they will be copying your example, right? In big ways and in small ways, from the expressions they choose to the life choices they make. So it's important to set a good example. And when it comes to our spiritual life, it's critical that we set a good example. What kind of example are you setting? If people were following you, copying your example, would you be encouraging their faith or discouraging it? Would you be building them up and encouraging them to obedience or leading them into sin? disobedience? Would you be conforming them to the image of Christ, or would you be causing them to lose out on eternal rewards? Well, what kind of example should you set? What should we be doing? Our passage has the answer. God, through the pen of Apostle Paul, commends the Thessalonians for the example that they're setting and gives us three specific areas, three specific things that they're doing that we're going to look at today. So let's look at our passage. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. 1 Thess 6, 1 Thess 1, 6 through 10. That's a tongue twister. It starts out, and you, you Thessalonians, became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word, you welcomed the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception, right, the warm welcome we had received from you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
So let's remember a little bit about the context here. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. It's a mix of Jewish and Gentile believers, right? They're new believers, fairly recent converts. And Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia. And it's a really strategic city. It's placed by the coast. There are major trade routes that run through it. So this isn't just like a rural outpost. This is an important place with great impact. And immediately our passage starts out with you, you Thessalonians, you're doing a great job. You're setting a great example. Paul is commending them for what they're doing. The word's gone out about the Thessalonians too, not just in Thessalonica, but out to Macedonia and Achaia. So it's gone out over a large area. And those two provinces make up the size of something that's even larger than modern day Greece. So the word was going out about what was happening. They were great examples, they were great role models. So that's kind of like as if in Aliso Viejo, Compass Bible Church, the word's going out about what's happening here. Right? It's going out to Orange County, it's going down to San Diego, it's going up to LA. The word is out there. And that word example, typos, is a word that is often used too for the mold that you would use to make clay pots. You'd press the clay into that mold to make a clay pot, to have that clay conform to the mold or the impression that a stamp would leave, like stamping a coin. So that reminds me of sealing wax. Did you ever use sealing wax where you'd take the stick of wax and you'd melt it with a flame and you'd put a big pool of wax on an envelope and you'd press that stamp in. And when you pulled it off, I was always amazed that you'd see the representation of the stamp right there on the wax. That's what this word example means. They were doing a great job of conforming to the image of the apostles, but ultimately to the image of the Lord. These imitators were setting a good example. The imitators were being imitated. I love that. What a testimony. Well, we have three reasons of things that they were doing that Paul commends. And they start with the word for. And you might remember that the word for can also be translated because or since. So we're gonna look at these three fours that we have in our passage. Starting in verse six, we see one. For you receive the word in much affliction with joy. And then in verse eight. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth and your faith in God has gone forth. And then in verse nine, our last four, is for you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. So those are three fours, and we're gonna take them in reverse, and that's where we're gonna take our points. So we're gonna start with verse nine, and from these we will learn how to live a model life. So verse nine, we see that Thessalonians had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And if you've been around Compass Bible Church a little bit, you'll think about that, hmm, turning from and turning to, I recognize that. That is what we describe as repentance, right? Metanoia, turning from ourselves, turning to God. And it's a military term. The military troops would be marching in one direction and then they would do a 180 and they would march in the opposite direction. So here we have repentance, and then they're turning to serve God. So there's an implied faith and action. 
they weren't just putting their trust in God, they were putting their trust in God and then they were acting on it. So those are the components of the gospel, right? The Thessalonians were living out the gospel. They turned from idols and they're turning to serve and trust the living God. So point one on your outline is decisively turn from your own desires and serve God. Decisively turn from your own desires and serve God. This isn't a half step by the Thessalonians. They didn't take and add the living God to their pantheon of gods with a little g. No, they turned from idols, forsaking the idols and turning to the living God. It's a 180. You might remember that the Thessalonians, they worshiped a variety of gods. They had Roman gods, they had Egyptian gods, they had other gods. And idol worship was integrated into the fabric of society. So a conversion had political implications, it had social implications, it had economic implications. But the Thessalonians turned from that to serve the living God. And another aspect of their conversion was their focus on the Lord's return, right? Waiting, anticipating for the Lord's return. And they had some questions about that. They were concerned, what's going to happen to the people that died? And Paul's going to address that later in the letter. But we see that's another hallmark of a true conversion. It says hope in the Lord's return. And that word waiting is a hapex legomenon, which is a Bible word meaning that that's a term that happens only once in the Bible. It's a very rare word. And it means patient endurance, right? Sustained expectation, patience and trust. An example of their true faith as they waited for the Lord's return when things weren't easy. Well, if you're just starting out in Bible study, right, and as we're just starting our study together, it's foundational that we're all confident that we've turned from our own desires to serve the living God. We need to examine our hearts, as Paul calls us to do. We need to look for those signs of new life that Carlin taught about last, last week. We need to make sure we've turned and trusted because we serve the living God. And Psalm 115 verse 3 is so clear about this. One, Psalm 115 verse 3 that starts out, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but they do not see, they have ears, but they do not hear, noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel, feet, but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Isn't that good? Yeah, our God is alive. He hears us. He is intimately involved in our lives. He is affecting change. He is doing things. He speaks to us through his word, through the Holy Spirit. Trusting in idols is futile. Why would we turn to anything else other than our God, the living, real God? It's just foolishness when you think about it. It's futile. What can those idols offer us that our God 
can't offer us a million times more. In the late 1500s, there was a Japanese warlord named Hideyoshi, and he decided to build a large statue of Buddha and put it in a shrine in Kyoto. So it took 50,000 people five years to build this colossus. Imagine that, 50,000 people. That's like the size of San Clemente. The whole town working for five years to build this giant statue. And when it was completed and installed in the temple, a few years later, a great earthquake struck and the roof of the temple fell down and crushed the statue. And Hideyoshi was reported to be so angry, he took an arrow and he shot it at the crushed Buddha and he said, I put you here at great expense and you can't even look after your own temple. <laughs> well, it reminds me of our study last year in 1 Samuel chapter five, when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they put it into the temple of Dagon. Right? And the next day they come in and Dagon's on the floor. And they're like, whoa, that's strange, right? They probably picked it up, put it back up on the altar again. The next day they come back in again, Dagon's on the floor, his head's crushed off, his arms are broken. We serve the real and living God. Well, maybe you're saying, well, I don't bow down to idols. I don't have a shelf in my home or I've got these weird figures and statues. Well, there is a saying that says, today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. I love that. Today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. And you have to think about that for a minute, right? We now tend to idolize more of the things that are inside of us, right? What are the things that we use as idols today? Things that distract us from God, things that we want more than God things that are keeping us from serving God? Well, here's a few questions you can ask yourself, and these are just a hard diagnostic. It's not an ex, you know, extensive list. It's not the definitive list of questions, but just to get you thinking and praying through these. What are you willing to compromise your beliefs for? Think about that. Could it be your children's happiness? What are you willing to be disobedient to God, to say yes to, something and saying no to God. Oftentimes we want to maybe keep peace in our marriage, right? And we're willing to be disobedient for the sake of peace in our marriage. Those could be idols. What has caused you to be angry at God? What if it's taken away and would make you shake your fist at God? Maybe your job or your home? Those could be idols. Where do you turn for comfort? Is it food or your friends or shopping? That could be an idol. What preoccupies your thoughts? Are you spending a disproportionate amount of time thinking about things that really don't have value, that don't have significant eternal value? A great focus on non-great things? Those things could be idols. What do you blog about, tweet about, post about on social media? That could give you an indication of where you might have some idols in your, in your life. Now, as I said, this isn't a definitive list, but it's important to identify 
where we have idols, where our weaknesses are. We know all good gifts come from God, right? All the good stuff he has given us to enjoy. But when enjoyment crosses into idolatry, that can be a problem, right? When the things that we have been given to enjoy take a preeminence in our life and are crowding out God, that's where it crosses into idolatry. And it's a fine line, right? Things that are good, like our children, right? Children are a gift from God, we know that. But yet when we're willing to be disobedient to God for the sake of our children, it's crossing into idolatry. Or how about our looks? Time in the gym, that's good. It's good to be healthy. It's good to try and look nice. But when you have an over-obsession with that where you're saying yes to that and saying no to the things that God would have you do, then that is crossing into idolatry. So take the time to pray through those items. Ask God where you might have idols in your lives. He'll show you. He will make it very clear what you need to do, what you need to cut out, and then repent of those things and turn and trust in the living God. The Thessalonians were being commended for having turned from idols to serve the real and living God. And that's the first example that they were setting. That was the first way they were modeling a, a wonderful life. So let's look at the second four starting in verse 8. I start out with 4. Not only has the word of the Lord gone forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So the Thessalonians are being praised for their reputation, but also for the word of the Lord going forth from them. That's sharing the gospel Right, the word of the Lord sounding forth. And that word sounding forth again is a, is a hapax legomenon, a rare word that is used to um, have an active transmission, right? an effort, continuous effort, like the blast of a trumpet or like a clap of thunder. It's ringing out, reverberating out over a large area. Reminds me of an organ. Have you ever been in a great church and heard the organ thundering? And when the final chord is struck, you hear that sound just hanging there in the air. That's what the gospel is doing. It's reverberating out beyond Thessalonica to Macedonia and Achaia. And that's what we want to see here in Orange County, in Southern California, in the world. That's what we're doing at Compass Bible Church with Compass 2020 and Compass Bible Institute and our missionary partners across the world. We want the gospel to ring out. These Thessalonians, they had become evangelized evangelists. Right? They'd heard the word of the Lord, they had been evangelized themselves, and now they were evangelizing. They were going out and sharing what God was doing in their lives, how they had turned from idols to trust the living God. And we need to do the same. So point two on your outline is boldly proclaim the gospel. Boldly proclaim the gospel. This is God's message of salvation, right? The good news. We want the gospel to ring out, to reverberate out, bouncing off souls all around. 
and we need to proclaim it. We need to proclaim the word of the Lord. We're the king's messengers. That reminds me of a Disney movie, right, where you'd see the king's messenger come in, and it's maybe a little guy with kind of funny bright tights and kind of a crazy suit on, maybe a hat, had a long trumpet, some banners, and he'd go like, you know, a message from the king. And the townspeople would all gather around. Oh, what's the king have to say? And he'd pull out his scroll and he'd carefully read the message from the king and everybody would listen intently. And then maybe he'd nail it up on a tree, a proclamation. Well, we are the king's messengers, right? We have a message from the king. We're the ambassadors from the king. When you hear that word, you might think, oh, I recognize that, right? One of the first Bible verses maybe we learned. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We need to be bold and fearless in sharing the gospel because it's the word of the Lord. It's the king's message. It's God's message. We can't be ashamed. We can't present it with amendment or apologies. Imagine if the Disney King's messenger pulled out the scroll and then he was sort of hedging, well, I think this is what he said and I'm just going to kind of cut it down or maybe I'll just skip this part and you know, I'm just not going to read that. That wouldn't fly and neither should we. So where are you tempted to water down or change the king's message? Is it in the exclusivity of the gospel that Jesus is the only way? Or maybe you want to skip the bad news, right? That apart from Christ, we are all destined for God's wrath and judgment. Or maybe you think it's just easier to present, you know, God as a buddy Add him to your life and it'll make things better. Or the prosperity gospel. Jesus loves you and has a great plan for your life. Which is true if you think that plan includes trials, which certainly the Thessalonians were experiencing. It's important to live your life in a way that brings God glory. It's important to live your life in a way that makes the gospel appealing but you can't just live your life and not say anything. We need to have our words and our actions. The Thessalonians were commended for their reputation, but also for having the word of the Lord sound forth. And these were new believers, right? The Thessalonians were not seasoned Bible scholars. They weren't Sunday school graduates with years and years of study underneath their belt. They were newbies but yet they knew how to get right with the living God. And they were out there talking about what God had done in their lives and how they had turned from idols to trust the living God. The word was going forth and people were getting saved. It was like a ripple effect that the Thessalonians were creating. And so it can be with us here. How are you doing in sharing the gospel? Do you know it? When's the last time you shared your faith? Well, maybe you're sitting there thinking, Kate, I have tried, but I can't. 
the words just don't come. I know a biblical gospel. I want to, but then I get to that point and I'm tongue-tied and I, I can't figure out what's going on and I, I don't speak well and that's okay. All you need to do is to invite somebody to come and hear the gospel. Right? Bring them to church with you. Bring them to women in faith. Bring them to Stephanie. Bring them to me. Have somebody share the gospel with them. It doesn't necessarily have to be you if you don't feel like you're equipped for that. Christianity is a team sport, and sometimes we can get so trapped in the individualist society that we live in, you can walk out of a message about sharing the gospel and feel demotivated. Like, I can't do that. I'm a, I'm a second-rate Christian. Don't let that happen. You have to proclaim the gospel, but you can do that by being the one who extends the invitation. You open your mouth and you extend the invitation and you say, come and see. Come and see about this God. Come and hear what's happening at Compass Bible Church. There's a woman who doesn't speak English as her first language, but she has a love for the Lord. She has a heart for the lost. And she is out there in our neighborhoods talking about what God has done in her life and what he's doing here at Compass Bible Church. And she has brought more people to women's ministries than you can name. She brings them to navigating motherhood. She brings them to women in faith. She brings them to women's Bible study. She doesn't feel like she's necessarily gifted in sharing the gospel, but that's okay. She has borne so much fruit from having women come and hear the gospel and get saved. And so it can be as well. So don't be motivated. Be encouraged that you can do this. In 1993, a study was done, and Christians were asked, who has the responsibility for sharing the gospel? And back in 1993, 89% of Christians when asked said it was a Christian's responsibility. Every Christian had the responsibility to share the gospel in some shape or form. Asked again, 25 years later, only 64% of the Christians said they had the responsibility for sharing the gospel a 25-point drop in 25 years. We're abdicating our responsibility as the king's messenger. I don't know where that other 40% thought these people were going to hear the gospel from. Some of them pointed to the church. It's the church's job to share the gospel. It's not we individuals. But we know that's not right. We know that's not biblical. If you've sat in on any of the sermons here with Pastor Mike, you know that that's our job. Right? The royal task. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And the book of Acts is all about the word of the Lord sounding forth, a bit reverberating out and people getting saved. And we see that in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. This is disciples as in followers of Christ, right? With the, this is not just the, the close intimates of Jesus. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the God, the word of the Lord was out there reverberating, multiplying, adding followers of Christ. The gospel was ringing out. And whenever I hear that phrase, the gospel rings out, I think of Pastor Bobby Blakey. 
right? It seems to me like that was his, one of his favorite terms. He talked often of the gospel ringing out. Um, first, when he was on staff here in Aliso Viejo as our high school pastor, and then as the senior pastor of Compass Huntington Beach, our first church plant. And when I looked up on his website, wouldn't you know he actually preached on this passage from Thessalonians at the very first sermon that he preached at Compass Huntington Beach. It was five years ago, super hot day. They had the easy ups up. They were outside. It was a small handful of people, maybe a couple hundred people that got together to hear the word of the Lord preached by Pastor Bobby. And he talked about how he wanted to see the word of the Lord ring out in Huntington Beach. And it's done that. Five years later, there are over 1,500 people that call Compass Huntington Beach their home church. There's multiple, yeah, right, I know. Seriously, God gets a hand for that. And they have multiple buildings now. That's incredible. God is doing some great work in Huntington Beach. And Huntington Beach is a strategic location, right? It's a port city. There's some commerce, commerce there. There's some significant trade routes that are going through there. Yeah, that sounds like Thessalonica, right? <laughs> the word of the Lord has been sounding forth. And we need to boldly proclaim the message of the Lord, like the first Thessalonians did, like the Thessalonians did. And that's the second way to live a model life. Let's look at our last four, our third four, that starts in verse six. For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So the Thessalonians received the word with affliction, right? There were some trials that were going on, and that word affliction is the same word that's used for the pressing of grapes. Right? That's painful. They were being crushed. But yet, they had joy of the Holy Spirit. They weren't freaking out. They weren't anxious. They weren't running around all worried, like, oh, woe is me, what is happening? No, they weren't. They had the joy of the Holy Spirit. So point three on your outline is calmly endure suffering. Calmly endure suffering. And you might remember what's going on in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica. We see that in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9. Acts 17, 5 through 9, where Paul and the missionaries are preaching Christ in the synagogue in Thessalonica. And the non-believing Jews didn't like this. They didn't want Christ preached. They didn't want the apple cart tipped upside down because they were a free city and they didn't want to jeopardize that status. They didn't want any kind of insurrection going on. So they formed a mob and they set out to look for Paul and his missionaries and they were looking for him. They couldn't find him so they went to the house of Jason, a believer, because they thought he was staying there. They went in looking for Paul and when they couldn't find him, they dragged Jason out to the street and they started accusing him of turning the world upside down and setting another king besides Caesar, this King Jesus. You know, he was an insurrectionist in their mind. And this definitely had that political overtones, right? They had concerns about losing that status. So the citizens banded together and they demanded a ransom, you know, a security deposit 
from Jason and a pledge that he wasn't going to let Paul back into his house. Jason was being persecuted. The Thessalonians were being persecuted for their faith. Well, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you know that trials are certain. We're told that in John chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, 33 says, in this world you will have tribulation. Right? It's coming. Pastor Phil DeCourcy that preached to us over the summer taught on this very topic. And I loved what he said. He said, we are in one of four stages when it comes to trials. We're either going into a trial, we're in a trial, we're coming out of a trial, or we're getting ready to go back into another trial. Did you get that right? We're going into a trial, we're in a trial, we're coming out of a trial, we're getting ready to go back into another trial. So basically it's continuous. If you're in a period of calm in your life, praise God, it's probably not going to last long. <laughs> so, so we need to be prepared. We can have joy despite our circumstances. We can have that inner serenity. We can have external affliction and inner joy because the joy comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Our joy is tied to our relationship with Christ. It's not circumstantial. And that's why we can have joy even in midst of very difficult circumstances because our relationship with Christ is secure. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. If you are a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you can rest in that fact. And that is what gives us joy that the world can't understand. The world thinks when your circumstances are rotten that you should be feeling pretty rotten. But yet we can have that joy knowing that it's well with our soul. So how do we embrace trials with joy? By putting what we know to be true into practice. Trials allow us to take what we know in our heart, what we've studied about God and who he is and his nature, and to live it out. We know God is good and that he promises that he will work all things out in our lives. Right? There is no pain without purpose. Romans 8.28. God promises he will not leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13.5. Right? How powerful is that? God is with us. He is present. He is present right now. For the ladies that are walking through trials right now, as followers of Christ, he is with you. You are not forsaken. You are not alone. You are not bearing that burden yourself. And we can feel that way. Trials can make us feel weary and heavy-hearted. But as our song, our praise song today was, we can sing with joy because we know we have a relationship with Christ and he will not forsake us. And we know that in the end, these trials will end. Maybe in this life, but if not, in the next, well, he will make everything crooked straight. He will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear. And that's where we get the hope in our study of holiness and hope. We have hope for what lies ahead. And we have the Holy Spirit as our down payment, as our guarantee that this is going to happen. Ladies, we have so much to look forward to.
Well, trials come in different shapes and sizes, but the trials that the Thessalonians were experiencing was opposition to their faith. I can imagine that that was very difficult. I'm sure there were women there whose husbands were still actively worshiping idols. And so we can feel the same opposition for our faith from our neighbors, from our coworkers, and from our family. And that's painful. It's painful when you get that stiff arm, don't talk to me about your God. Right? When your parents, and you want to evangelize them, and you've tried to share the gospel so many times, and they say, I don't want to hear it anymore. Right? Or your siblings, or your children. People say, how can you be so intolerant? How can you be so judgmental? How can you be so unloving? I can't be around you because of that. We're going to face opposition to our faith. But yet, we can do that with joy. And it seems that those who have tribulation, who have trials, sometimes have a greater joy, a closer walk with Christ, a more intimate relationship with him than those that are spiritually comfortable. Joy is a product of our relationship with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, John Wesley, the renowned theologian and evangelist, was riding along the road one day and he realized, I haven't been persecuted in three days. He was like, wow, not an egg, not a brick. And then he started to get worried. Oh no, could it be that I have sinned? And he jumped off on his, from his horse and he got down on his knees and he cried out to God and he said, God, if there is any fault within me, please show me. And a nearby farmer heard him praying and said, oh, there's that preacher again. He picked up a rock and he threw it at him. <laughs> and John Wesley jumped up and said, praise the Lord, I still feel his presence. Well, I don't want to belittle trials. They're difficult. They're painful. But we have the presence of the Lord as we're walking through them. We can have a mindset of joy. We can have hope. As Stephanie taught us, I'd much rather have eternal life than a trouble-free life, than a trial-free life. And that's what we have, ladies, as followers of Christ. We have eternal life even if this life is not gonna be trouble-free. But let's not have trials derail us. Let's not have them wreck our example. Right? We wanna be able to use trials as a platform to showcase our faith. If you've been out sharing your faith with your coworkers, with your neighbors, when you are going through trials, they will be watching you. They'll be watching your example to see how you handle it see what you do when the rubber meets the road. What a great opportunity we have to live a model life when it's not easy. Well, when you think about someone who lived a model life, you might think about missionaries that lived in far off lands sharing the gospel. But there's a woman who had a model life that did significant work just up the road in Hollywood. Her name was Henrietta Mears. 
And Henrietta Mears is known as an educator and a strong evangelist and an author and the founder of the National Sunday School Association. She has her roots in the Midwest. She was a teacher there. But in the mid-1900s, she felt a call to move out to Hollywood. And she joined First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood as their director of Christian education. And she was really frustrated with the curriculum that they had for Sunday school back then. She felt like it was just a bunch of flannel graph stories and there wasn't anything there for the varying ages of students. So she created age-specific Sunday school curriculum from the youngest all the way up through college. And then she started teaching those various groups. And within two years, there were over 4,200 people that were coming through her Sunday school at Hollywood Press. Isn't that incredible? She had a college group that was so vibrant and growing. She even housed students in her home. She was so committed and passionate about seeing the word of the Lord go forth. And the people that came through that study went on to be full-time Christian workers. Names like Bill Bright and Bonnette Bright were the founders of Campus Crusades for Christ, now known as Crew. That's a great ministry for college-age kids that has impacted so many lives for Christ. Or perhaps Billy Graham, you recognize that name? Billy Graham Crusades, how many people have come to Christ through that? He was part of her Sunday school. Or Jim Rayburn, founder of Young Life, another great ministry for young adults. Even Ronald Reagan went through her Sunday school. Well, if you've ever been impacted by any of those ministries, you can thank Henrietta for the ripple effect that she has had in our lives, for the impact that her passion for seeing the word of the Lord go out that has happened. The word of the Lord has reverberated because of the work that she's done. But she didn't stop there. She went on to found Gospel Light Publications. If you've ever read any of her books or maybe the website. And then Forest Home Christian Conference Center. Have you ever been blessed by going up to Forest Home and having a retreat up there? You can thank Henrietta. But yet her life wasn't easy. She suffered from poor health most of her life. She had very poor eyesight. She was almost going to go blind when she was a young child. And when she felt the call and moved to the West Coast, she was in middle age, unmarried. So basically that takes all our excuses, right? Our health, our age, our marital status, none of that mattered for her. She just had a passion for seeing the word of the Lord be taught and people be saved. She was stepping out of faith and wanted to see the gospel ring out across the world. She was quoted as saying, when I consider my ministry, I think of the world. Anything less than that would not be worthy of Christ nor of his will for my life. God's not looking for people with great talent, great wealth, great notoriety. God can use ordinary people that are willing to set a good example, like the Thessalonians, like us. 
Well, maybe you're going to say, oh, I'm just, a, I'm just a mom. I'm just a worker. I'm just serving in kids' ministry. I'm just a Sunday school teacher. God can use you if you're willing to turn from idols to trust him, to boldly proclaim the gospel, and to calmly endure suffering. And who knows the ripple effect that your life will have. Let's pray. God, thank you that you would use any of us as your tools to build your kingdom, God. What a privilege it is to be counted as daughters of the king, the king's messengers. God, help us to take that task seriously, to not give in to fear, but to boldly proclaim your message, be it through sharing the gospel or bringing other people to hear the gospel, Lord. And Lord, help us to calmly endure trials, to see that as an opportunity to bring you glory. Help us to turn from the idols in our lives that can derail us, that can cause us to focus on things other than you would have us do. Lord, show us what they are. Help us to cut them out. May that spur transparent and transformative conversations in our small groups. May we be able to sense exactly what it is that you would like us to do and to take action on that. God, thanks for all the women here that show up to hear your word, that desire to know you better, to love you more, to serve you better. Lord, just bless them for that. Bless their leaders, Lord, and may they have great and rich conversations in group. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.